You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. I think I have had the opportunity to meet everyone. I'm glad the lights are on because I was like, I can't see anyone in here. Um, I'm Kyle, uh, as Keith introduced me a little bit ago. I'm one of the members here, and um, it's a privilege for me to be able to bring you guys the word this morning. So uh, we are going to be looking at Nehemiah 12, verses 27 through 47 today. Um, This is going to be the second to last sermon in the Ezra-Nehemiah large sermon series. Um, And you might remember from the last few weeks, but uh, what led up to this is the Jews have finally finished the wall that's around Jerusalem. um, And in celebration to that, they've recommitted themselves to the Mosaic laws. And now in our passage this morning, we're going to see them have their, in a sense, their official wall dedication ceremony. Uh, And so That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be seeing how that ceremony and celebration went. So uh, if you could turn to Nehemiah 12 and stand up so that we can stand together in reverence for God's word as I read it. So follow follow along with me as I read Nehemiah 12, 27 through 47. It says this, And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the distinct districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, and also from Beth Gilgal and from the regions of Geba and Asmaveth, and from the singer, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah great choirs that gave thanks. I'm sorry. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, And after them went Hosea and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshalam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zechar, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milali, Gilali, Maai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate, 
and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests Eliakim, Messiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Eloianai, Zechariah, and Hananiah, Hananiah, with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehonanan, Melchijah, Elam, and Ezar. And the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy, and the women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them, into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the man, command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs to praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. You may be seated. Let me pray for us before we get any further. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your word. Uh, this is not just the weird, mere words of men. This is the words of your Holy Spirit, inspired text written down by men, but it is your word nonetheless. Let it be a light to us this morning. Let it be guidance. Let it be encouragement. Let it be a comfort. Let it be conviction. Father, may your spirit use your word to refine us all this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read to you a quote from Donald Whitney. If you don't know who that is, he's an author and theologian. He wrote this in a book called Spiritual Disciplines. There's an element of worship in Christianity that cannot be experienced in private worship or by watching worship. There are some graces and blessings that God gives only in the meeting together with other believers. Now, I share that quote this morning for two reasons. First, because it's true. There is an indispensable set of blessings that God provides for us on these Sunday mornings, these gatherings that we have together that we will not experience apart from this. But second, I share that quote because we forget that it's true all the time. In the world of audio recorded sermons, live stream services, I'm not trying to bash what we're doing here, and social media, the dangers of those things are that they make us prone to forget how unique the actual corporate presence and gathering of us together really is. We live in a day and age where the value of corporate worship is more under attack than I would argue it ever has been in the history of the Christian church. We can easily lose sight of the glory contained 
in these times that we have together. Fortunately, Nehemiah gives us the opportunity to be reminded of the importance of this time together this morning. What we just read in Nehemiah 12 is a glimpse of a Jewish worship service. During that service, we got to see three major things taking place. Um, And those are things that, as you'll see, are things that we practice week in and week out on Sunday mornings as well. And those three things are going to be my points this morning. I want us to look at them and ask ourselves, why do we do this? Why are they important? What is the value in them? Um, Those things that we're going to look at are, one, singing. We're going to look at the giving that took place and the sacrifices that were made. We're going to look at each of those things and consider what is spiritually happening in the midst of those things on Sunday mornings. It is my hope and prayer that through this, you would come to a deeper appreciation for our own worship gatherings that we have. I know as I have been preparing this sermon, it's been really convicting for me how easy it is for me to devalue these times. Um, And so I hope it would have a similar effect on all of us. So with that said, let's get right into it. Uh, The most obvious aspect of corporate worship that we see here uh, is singing. It's highlighted right in the very first verse. Look with me again at... uh, Nehemiah 12, verse 27, it says, And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. So what we have here is we see the leaders and all the singers are gathering into two groups. So they gather the people. They want to celebrate the dedication of this wall. So they're gathering all the singers, they're gathering all the people to Jerusalem. They purify them. They purify the gates, they purify the wall, and then they separate into two large choirs that are full of the leaders of the people. There was probably anyone who wanted to join could probably join them. And it's it's hard to follow if you don't have a map of what Jerusalem Jerusalem look like at this point in time. But if you read through, as we did earlier, the journey through the different gates along the wall, what you see there is, imagine Jerusalem kind of set up like a rectangle that goes north and south is the long way. Uh, The temple would be in the northeast corner. And so what they did is they headed to the west wall and the choir's separated from each other. One went south around the bottom half, and then the other one went north, and they eventually met and converged on the temple. So that's what this is describing to us. That's what they did. And all the while that they're doing this, they're singing, they're playing musical instruments. There was probably lots of dancing going on. They're celebrating with song. Uh, And so, and, and we see from what Nehemiah states, he actually says this three times, Their songs were meant to express thanksgiving to God. That is the purpose of their singing. They are setting their hearts upon God and showing gratitude to him. And if you think about it, their singing should not be a surprise to us. Singing has been used in corporate worship throughout biblical history. There are nearly as many references to singing and music in the Bible as there are to prayer. Uh, I I looked it up just as a word study just to kind of get a sense, and it's shocking how many times it's referenced. We're commanded to worship through song. We're commanded to sing in Scripture nearly 50 times throughout the book of the Bible. 
And don't forget that Psalms, the Psalter, the biggest book of the Bible is a literal hymn book. So we have that as well. Song is important in scripture. God has always meant for music and singing to play a part in our worship together. And that should make sense to us also because we are image bearers of God. And we sing because our triune God sings. Um, If you look at Zephaniah 3, Matthew 26, Ephesians 5, those are just a couple passages where if you look at each of them, they reference the Father, Son, and Spirit all singing, either over God's people, with God's people, or through God's people. God is a singing God, and we as his image bearers sing as well. More than that, though, we do it because singing uniquely expresses and stirs our hearts towards God and one another. Uh, Colossians 3, 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Notice how, how Paul is tying singing alongside and with teaching and admonishment. It's meant to be thanksgiving. There's something beautiful that happens when you pair a good melody with good teaching. Ben was already talking about this earlier. Um, The melody, it's not magic, but it almost seems like it is. The melody elevates the teaching somehow. It takes the meaning of the words and it enhances it for us. Um, It's, like I said, it's not magic or anything, but music has a way of stirring our emotions in a unique way. It can almost seem to make the words f- and that we sing feel more real to us a lot of the time. Uh, through song, biblical truths can a lot of the time penetrate our hearts, our hearts more deeply than they otherwise would if we were just reading it or saying it. And that's where the power of music lies. That's where it's greatest. And that is the power. There's power in singing the rich truths of scripture. And that last part is key. Singing without a focus on God is just a concert. That's not what we're here for. Concerts can be very emotionally moving events, but that's not the same thing as being, being spiritually enlightening, spiritually engaging and refining. That's a concert. But on the other hand, when a church sings songs with lyrics that are full of biblical language and, and truth, theological richness, we really can begin to engage with God through the songs that we sing. They can bolster our faith as we sing. The Spirit uses it to encourage and build up his, his congregation. This kind of music can be real worship and communion with God. As we sing, the Spirit encourages, comforts, convicts, and strengthens us. So that begs the question, how do you engage with the singing that we do on Sunday mornings? Do you posture yourself in such a way that you experience that work from the Spirit? Let's look at an example. Take the song, Come Thou Fount. We sang it last week. This is my favorite hymn, period. It's, it's my favorite. I love it. Um, when you sing Come Thou Fount, maybe think back to last, last week. When we sang that together, did you meditate on the lyrics as you sang it? Or, in contrast, were you distracted by something else? 
Maybe you were responding to text messages or something. Or maybe you were just preoccupied by someone else. Maybe you don't like that song, so you just kind of zoned out and just didn't really engage with it. If you do that, you're not going to get any kind of spiritual response from those songs. They're not going to, it's not, that's not worship. However, let's pause and think about the lyrics of that song and what it would be like for someone to meditate through them as they are singing them. So we've got my favorite verse from the song on the screen. On that day when freed from sin, sorry, I'm not going to sing it. You're, you should be grateful. I'm not. On that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry, bring thy promises to pass, for I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. Now, let's say you arrived here in the morning before you sing that song and you're weighed down by sin. Maybe you've lost your temper and said something hurtful to your spouse or your kids. Maybe you went out on the Friday night before church and you drank too much and you're ashamed of that. Maybe you feel captive to lust and sexual immorality that you've committed. I don't know what it would be for you. It's gonna be different for all of us, but let's say you arrive a morning that we're singing that song and you're ashamed, you're discouraged, you're disappointed in yourself, and we start to sing that song. Think about what these words can mean for you in that moment. Friends, those lyrics are for you. That That song, these words give us hope when we are in that state. Because of Christ, one day you really will be freed from sinning. The freedom that you long for, you really will get to experience. You will finally be unshackled from your shame. You can look forward to a day when you will no longer be burdened by the weight of your sin and disappointment. The only weight you will carry will be the light, immaculate, and glorious robes that Jesus died to give you. And how do we know that? How do we know that's true? How do you silence the doubts in your mind that tell you that you're going to shipwreck your own faith before that happens? The end of the verse reassures you. For I know thy power, God, your power, not my own, will keep me till till I'm home with you at last. Think about what it's like to be in a state of discouragement. Maybe that's a state that you're in this morning and you're ashamed of your sin, and you're singing and meditating on those words and telling yourself, this is true, despite how I feel. New City, when we engage with the songs that we sing, they shape us. But even more than that, corporate worship uniquely enables us to shape one another. Again, Ben already touched on this. What do, what, what do I mean when we shape one another through our songs? I mean this, few things have been more awe-inspiring to me than watching a woman who has just suffered a miscarriage sing the song, It Is Well With My Soul. It has moved me to tears standing next to a friend who is deep in the darkness of depression, 
but who is still lifting up his voice to sing about God's loving faithfulness to him. That is what I mean by shaping each other. During our corporate worship, we get to behold our brothers and sisters sing to God in the midst of the best and worst moments of their lives. As you sing, don't just stand there with your eyes closed or maybe just locked on the screen of the lyrics that you probably actually already know. Don't just sit there as though you are the only person in the room. Look around at the people that you're singing with. Consider the joys and the trials that your friends are singing through. And I dare you to not be transformed as you sing that together. That is why we sing. That is why singing in corporate worship can be so powerful in our lives. That is why the Jews sang so much in Nehemiah 12 as they celebrated the completion of their wall. Their joy was increased by singing together. The praise that they had for God was magnified through that. They didn't just sing though. Let's look back at the text. Look with me at verse 44. It says this, on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. In addition to singing, the Jews made offerings during the wall dedication. They tithed their money, their food, their possessions, and it was all in accordance to the Mosaic law of how they were called to worship. And to understand this, why that is, it's important. You have to understand the purpose of the tithe. Of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Levites were the only ones who were not allocated land when they, were enter when they entered into the promised land. Instead of working the land, they were given the responsibility over religious matters for the entire nation of Israel. The priests, which are a subset of the Levites who are descendants of Aaron, they performed the sacrifices and the temple rituals. The rest of the Levites helped with all of the other temple responsibilities, and they also served as teachers and judges, helping settle disputes in the various cities around the region. Um, so with all of those responsibilities for this tribe in mind, Notice that none of those things really help you make money or get food. They weren't growing their own crops. And that's why the tithe was part of this law system. The other tribes gave the Levites 10% of what they had so that the Levites could devote all of their time and attention not to gaining those things, but to the temple and their religious duties as a nation. And that is what we see going on here in Nehemiah 12, specifically the, the last verses in 44 through 47. Nehemiah put certain men in charge of overseeing the collection and the distribution of the tithe so that none of the Levites went hungry. Why does that matter to us? Because it shows how important giving was to corporate worship. People's lives depended on it in very, very real ways. They would go hungry without it. And if you think about it, that's still true today. We are not bound by the Mosaic law to give an exact 10% tithe. We don't have Levites to, to provide for, but we still give to provide for each other. And we give so the church can provide for the needy, both inside and outside of our church. 
We give so that we can fund missionaries and other ministries for the spread of the gospel. We also give to pay our staff. So in that sense, it is very much like the Levites. Nick is able to devote himself to preaching and leading us well because we collectively have chosen to support him financially. And we should be eager to do so. And as Josh is raising support, um, we have the privilege to help him financially so that he can focus on discipling students. There's something beautiful about this, you guys. We share amongst ourselves to further the mission of Christ throughout our community. That is a powerful thing that we get to do together every Sunday morning. So when you think about it, don't just, if you give your gift through the text message, when you do that, just take some time to consider what you're giving for. Don't just do it out of a sense of obligation. Remember what that money is going towards, how it is an act of spiritual discipline for yourself to share and to to be a part of the community that is here. There's a dark side to giving, though. Controversy always seems to follow money, if you think about it. Have you noticed that? Nehemiah feared misuse of the tithe in chapter 12. That's why he handpicked people to oversee it. Even in doing that, though, it wasn't enough. Um, As Caleb will show us next week as he finishes up this sermon series, things still went very wrong as they did this. People get weird about money, if you think about it. But that is actually another reason why our corporate giving is so important for us spiritually. It challenges us. People get weird about money because we don't like to give it away. So much of what we do in life is done in an effort to earn money, not lose it. And that is dangerous for us because wealth is a strong and subtle idol. And we don't often realize how strong its grip is upon our hearts until we're expected to give something away. So when we give our offerings on Sunday mornings, we are working together to fight that idol in our hearts. We are guarding our hearts against a powerful enemy. In addition to that though, our gifts also proclaim throughout our church three truths and they preach them to ourselves and to each other. One, all things are first and foremost God's. They are not ours. We are only stewards of the things that we have. We are not entitled to them, and that is humbling to be reminded. We really can, second, depend upon God for provision. We are called to give meaningfully, not just out of excess. We should feel the loss, but it is good because it is an opportunity for us to actively exercise our trust in God when he promises to meet our needs. And third, when we give on earth, we gain in heaven. That is something for God, that God wants us to remember. Our goal is not to accumulate earthly treasure, but to spread word of the heavenly one that we have been given freely. New city, let's take God at his word. Second Corinthians 9, 6 through 8 says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Let's take God at that word. Let's sow bountifully together so that we may reap bountifully together. We should expect God to do great things for the spread of the gospel as we give joyfully and humbly together. With that, I come to my last point. It'll be the shortest, but it's the most important one. I want to focus our attention on just one verse. Let's look at verse 43 in Nehemiah 12. Nehemiah writes this, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. You guys don't gloss over the beginning of this verse. This wall dedication would have been an incredible sight. Thousands of people singing and dancing, all kinds of instruments being played, amazing songs. Everyone is as happy as could be. I mean, just look at the verse. See how many times either the word rejoice or joy is used. One, two, three, four, five times in one verse. People are happy. This is a joyous occasion. But in all of that, don't miss the sacrifices. In the midst of all of this celebration, there was also a lot of blood and a lot of death. Great sacrifices were given that day. As the text says, people rejoiced, but animals were killed. Now, this picture can be jarring to think about. I mean, it is for me. When I first, when I was starting to prepare this sermon and I was thinking about this and trying to visualize the situation in my head, I didn't initially think about sacrifices at all. Even though I read it in the text, I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about all the the good stuff that was happening, all the happy stuff, all the clean stuff. But you guys, we can't sanitize this because this is God's word. It's jarring to think about in the midst of all of this joy, yet there's, there's death, there's sacrifice. You don't see this sort of thing today. So how do we reckon with this kind of juxtaposition between death and joy? Why would God want that? We have to start by humbly recognizing that we have far too low of a view of God and far too high of a view of ourselves. God is holy and we are not. In our sin, sin that we have of our own volition chosen, we have separated ourselves from him. To approach God would not just be scandalous. It's not like approaching the president of the United States or the queen of England and doing something scandalous before them. It's far, far worse than something like that. It would be impossible for us to approach God. In our sin, and because of his holiness, because of his purity, we would be destroyed attempting to draw near to God. A person cannot fly towards the sun and hope to live. This is the same exact idea. That is what it would be like for us to try to draw near to God because 
He is far holier than we can understand, and we are far worse in our sin than we can imagine. But God made a way so that we could approach him. The death of one could atone for the life of another. That's the key to the sacrifices. It's not that God wanted a bunch of animals to be killed. It's that there was no other way for him to be with his people because of our sin, because of our choices, because we abandoned him first. And that wasn't just true of the Jews. As I'm saying, it's we. It was true for the Jews in Nehemiah, and that is true for us as well. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Death is the price for our joy. And if we want the hope of eternal life with God, blood must be spilled. A death for a life. But you guys, thanks be to God that he planned to end the sacrificial system once and for all. And he had that plan from the start. Hebrews 10 verses 11 through 14 say this, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. You guys, the animal sacrifices were meant to just point to the future great and true sacrifice. Jesus was not only our great high priest, but he is the sacrifice that he laid at the altar. He offered up his own life. Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, offered up his own life as our last sacrifice. Where all of the other previous sacrifices were inadequate, his blood was powerful enough to cleanse us all from all of our unrighteousness, past, present, and future. He has purified all who trust in him. We get to see the face of God without fear because Jesus has cleansed us. We have been offered eternal joy through his blood. That is why we don't make sacrifices anymore. That's why we get the privilege of not needing to have this kind of scene on Sunday mornings today. Each of us every day sins and warrants the need for more blood to be spilled. But each and every day, Jesus is still our living and everlasting sacrifice. The only sacrifices we make now are the sacrifices of our time, our energy, our money, and our resources to make sure everyone gets to hear that. So when we gather for corporate worship, New City, we don't sacrifice like they did in Nehemiah 12. Instead, we make the sacrifice of Christ the focus of our worship and the foundation of our joy. That is what it means to be gospel-centered. That's what it means to worship together in the name of the Son. I am not clean because I am good. I'm not saved because I earned it. I don't get to see God because I'm better than other people. I will spend eternity with God because despite my sin, Jesus healed me by dying in my place. And that can be true for every single one of you. 
That is what we get to celebrate together every Sunday morning. That is the good news that promises to transform the lives of all who believe. Not even the Jews in Nehemiah 12 understood this good news that they were, they were celebrating a glimpse of this, but we get to have the full picture. Let's praise God for that each and every day, but especially on Sundays together. Brothers and sisters, we were made to worship and not just individually, together. We were designed to sing together. We were designed to give to one another. We were meant to worship Jesus, the son of God, whose sacrifice has saved us all. There is power in that kind of corporate worship that neither sin nor Satan can overcome. That is where the spirit works and moves. There's satisfaction in that kind of worship that nothing else can match. Plus, when we worship together, we get a glimpse of the day to come when our worship and joy will never cease. I want to leave you with one final picture from Revelation. This is the worship we get to look forward to together. This is Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, that will happen one day. It is so easy to get so bogged down in our lives that we forget that we will spend an eternity worshiping, that we will get to bask in your glory like flowers of a field bask in the sun, the sun's light and warmth. That is the day we get to look forward to. Father, help us to make every Sunday morning a whisper of that, a glimpse of that, a testimony to that, and a reminder to each of us that that will happen. And we will get to experience that together as brothers and sisters adopted into one family in Christ. As we enter a time of the Lord's Supper and singing again together, Lord, help us to appreciate all that you do in and through us individually and for each other when we get to worship together. And Jesus, thank you for dying. Thank you for being our sacrifice, though we don't deserve you, so that we can worship with glad and joyful hearts. I pray this in your name. Amen.